Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. A Border Patrol checkpoint 90 miles from the boundary with Canada leaves a family reeling. I was just worried, like, what if they're going to hurt my parents? Or, you know, what if this is the last time I'm going to see them and I can't, I couldn't even say goodbye. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll discuss the impact of immigration checkpoints popping up around New England. Plus, a small island off the coast of Maine may become the model for future electricity grids. It's more reliable, it's more robust, it's resilient. Failures are isolated. And as recreational marijuana is legalized in Massachusetts, growers start to think about how to go green. We're trying to figure out what is the absolute most efficient way to grow cannabis. And we'll meet the last kids on Cuddyhunk Island and get a tour, including a beach filled with sea glass and an exceptional strand of seaweed. Wow, oh my gosh. It's never been this long. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. U.S. Customs and Border Protection is legally allowed to stop people within 100 miles of any U.S. external boundary. And almost all of New England is within that 100-mile zone. This policy was enacted back in 1953, but there's been a lot more attention paid to the practice of Border Patrol checkpoints since the Trump administration started to crack down on immigrants in the country illegally. Lawmakers and civil rights organizations have been raising concerns about the practice of stopping cars and checking for passengers' immigration status far from the border. Joining us to discuss a recent arrest at one such checkpoint in New Hampshire is Robert Garova. He's a reporter at NHPR. Robert, welcome to Next. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us what happened to this young woman, Victoria, and her parents when they were on vacation in New Hampshire recently? Victoria and her parents were planning a vacation up to New Hampshire for a good couple months. They, over Memorial Day weekend, they they piled into the car with mom, dad, and their um, pet shih tzu and uh, made it up to uh, the White Mountains, you know, stayed in a hotel, went to the top of the, the White Mountains on the Cog Railway, um, and then were coming back to New York where they live on Interstate 93. Uh, near the town of Woodstock, and they went through a Border Patrol checkpoint stop. And one thing led to another, and Victoria's parents were detained. They ended up being held by ICE for a couple of weeks and eventually were, were released to go um, fight a deportation case back at home. They don't have legal immigration status in the U.S. What's interesting about all of this is that this happened 90 miles away from the Canadian border, which Victoria told me um, she wasn't aware, you know, that, that Border Patrol was doing this kind of thing that far away from the border. You know, that's something I would suspect if we were, like, down south, like, near the southern border, but, like, we didn't even think about the Canadian border. I was just worried, like, what if they're going to hurt my parents or, you know, what if this is the last time I'm going to see them and I can't, I couldn't even say goodbye. So what exactly happens at these checkpoints that are set up along highways? Border Patrol agents are allowed to ask people that they stop about their immigration status. They also use dogs that are trained in detecting both human trafficking and um, drug smuggling. 
And, you know, if a person is found to be in the country illegally, they're handed over to what's called ICE enforcement and removal operations and um, could, could be deported if, if they're found to be in, in the country illegally. So if you get stopped at one of these checkpoints, again, up to 100 miles away from the border, which means almost any place in New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, or almost all the rest of New England, what rights do you have? I mean, what are you able to do if you get stopped at one of these checkpoints? Nora Flaherty at Maine Public Radio, she actually recently interviewed Emma Bond. Uh, she's a staff attorney with ACLU of Maine. She said there are three things people should keep in mind if they're pulled over at, at one of these checkpoints. First, you can tell them that you are invoking your right to remain silent and then remain silent. Second, you can tell them, I do not consent to a search. And third, as many times as you want, you can ask, am I free to leave? And once the officer says you are, you should leave. Victoria's parents actually did decline to to answer um, Border Patrol questions, but one thing led to another, and they ended up being detained. This issue of Border Patrol checkpoints is something that's been going on really since the 1950s, although it seems like it's more present right now. Why all the increased awareness about these, these checkpoints that are happening far from the actual border? It's kind of hard, hard to say. I, I think that, you know, nationally immigration is, is at the top of a lot of people's minds right now. I went to one protest here in New Hampshire in which people were taking action against Trump administration's zero tolerance immigration policy, but they were also protesting these very Border Patrol checkpoints. So, you know, it, it feels like it, it may be sort of, you know, people in regions farther away from the southern border, you know, realizing sort of what, what some of the immigration practices are, you know, within their own state and connecting with it that way. It feels like there's more of these checkpoints showing up, maybe because it's such a big political issue right now. Robert, what do we know about the numbers, though? Are we seeing more of these checkpoints happening along the highways across New England? That's also hard to say because I asked Customs and Border Protection for the sector that oversees New Hampshire and, and a few other regions if they would give me numbers. You know, how, how many times has this checkpoint been set up on the I-93 going back to 2014? They wouldn't give me those numbers. Anecdotally, if, if you, like you say, you talk with people, I talked with a couple of people at a protest who said they grew up in the Woodstock area where these checkpoints have been taking place. And they say that, they, you know, they, they don't feel like they remember them. But without, you know, specific data from, from CBP, it's, it's hard to really, to really track the exact numbers. What's interesting is, is without those granular numbers, you kind of go to like a 30,000-foot view. There's this historian at NYU who I talked with for the story. Her name's Hannah Gurman. She had some really interesting things to say about what she calls the blurring of the lines between interior and border enforcement. And here's a little bit of tape from her. The big change that happened under Trump, particularly in the first year, was deporting people who had been in the United States for a long time, living here with families who had no criminal record whatsoever. In the next state over in Vermont, they've been having checkpoints, too. And Senator Patrick Leahy is actually co-sponsoring legislation that would change the size of this border area. That would be big for New England. What can you tell us about what he's proposing? What he's trying to do is um, shrink the area of the border zone from 100 miles to 25 miles. He said, gone on record as saying that the policies that have gotten us to this, you know, 100 mile um, border patrol checkpoint predate the Trump administration. Um, you know, he said that, that it should be a bipartisan effort. Two thirds of the American population live in this 
100-mile border zone. So if we're seeing border patrol checkpoints and it's within that 100-mile zone, it's it's likely that more and more people are going, going to come across these checkpoints and it will become, you know, a, an increasingly sort of political issue when it comes to um, immigration policy. Robert Garova is a reporter at NHPR and he's been covering border checkpoints. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. As we've been reporting in our project, The Big Switch, renewable energy sources such as wind and solar are muscling their way into the country's energy mix. But they're still pretty unpredictable, creating significant management challenges and big swings in electricity prices. Now a small island several miles off Maine's coast has become the laboratory for a pretty big solution. Islanders and engineers are using artificial intelligence, complex algorithms, and a bootstrapping attitude to design what they're calling the next, next electricity grid. For Maine Public Radio, Fred Bever explains how. You can only reach Isle of Ho, a part of Acadia National Park that's about six miles out from the mainland, by boat. On the way, you can see red-lettered signs warning mariners of an underwater cable. It's the one that brings electricity to the island and the cable is 17 years beyond its predicted life. It could wear out at any moment. You know, if that cable failed, it'd be a disaster for the island. Stephen Strong is one of a group of engineers, scientists, and islanders trying to avert that disaster. Their solution is a flexible microgrid, an array of island-based energy generators and storage systems that will keep the lights on and houses warm when that cable fails. And they're trying to do it for less than the $1.7 million cost of a new cable. And the microgrid is less expensive, and they keep the money on the island when they're done. Strong is lead engineer for an electricity system that will be anchored by a half-acre field of solar panels. It'll also include some pretty massive batteries, electric heat pumps that can store excess energy in basement water tanks, and as a kind of safety net for it all, a diesel generator. On a visit to the shed housing that generator, scientist Kay Aiken playfully half-closes a door on the project collaborators. We'll lock them in. (laughs) You're not getting out until we have a (laughs) microgrid. Aiken's Portland-based company, Introspective Systems, designs software for artificial intelligence networks that can manage complex systems or really teach them to manage themselves. It's like building an engineered ecosystem. This is my laboratory. The company has a million-dollar grant from the U.S. Department of Energy to design an electricity ecosystem that's run by artificial intelligence. On Isla Ho, AI computer chips will let solar panels, batteries, heat pumps, and the lot decide for themselves when to make energy, when to take it, use it, or store it, depending on what's most cost-effective. Company co-founder Carol Johnson says the island's smart energy assets will compete and cooperate, sort of the way swamp-dwelling frogs and snakes do. A frog has a perspective that involves not being eaten by a snake. Snake is quite different, you know, how do I catch frogs? Yet the sometimes warring impulses of frogs and snakes taken together help keep a swamp balanced, even in the face of complex and swiftly changing conditions. The decisions that are made by the entities in the swamp are all independent, but the result is a stable ecosystem. And so that's what we're trying to achieve in in terms of the systems we design, computationally stable ecosystems. Such as a self-controlling microgrid on Isla Ho. And you can scale it up, linking one microgrid to another and another, then to the electrical network for a region, 
all the way up to the entire nation's grid. Instead of today's centralized command and control system, the next next grid would be decentralized. It would be controlled, says Kay Aiken, from the grid's edges by the collective decisions of the electrical swamps, frogs and snakes. It's AI-enabled devices. And you can do the very fine control with thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of devices without a supercomputer. That will more effectively respond to the multiplex of non-polluting energy sources that are proliferating around the country, she says. And if any one section of the system suffers a catastrophe, maybe from a storm, maybe a cyber attack, it can quickly be shut off from the rest. It's more reliable, it's more robust, it's resilient, failures are isolated. For the president of the island's electricity company, Jim Wilson, a sophisticated vision for a renewable energy future is all well and good. But the bottom line is that the local experiment will protect islanders against the unaffordable cost of replacing an old underwater cable. At a minimum, it prevents a collapse of the population. But down the road, we should have very stable prices and maybe even competitive with the mainland. Wilson says the collaborators hope to get this small model for what eventually could be major change in the nation's energy systems up and running by New Year's Eve. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. A long-running debate about tourism versus preservation is heating up on top of the highest mountain in the Northeast. New Hampshire's Mount Washington is attracting more visitors each year, and some fear its delicate ecosystems are at risk from proposed development and overuse. New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek has this story from the summit. As you near the top of Mount Washington, the trees get shorter and shorter and finally disappear. This is the highest mountain in the northeastern U.S., crowned with an alpine zone, a bare windswept slope of yellow-green grass, endangered flowers, and fragile lichens. I can see uh, some deer's hair sedge, bigelow sedge. Um, there's some Lapland rose bay. That's Naturalist David Gavatsky first climbed this mountain when he was 14. Since then, he's hiked every foot of the White Mountain National Forest's 1,400 miles of trails. He leads me down one of them, an ankle-bending rocky path that's part of the Appalachian Trail, and he points down the mountainside. That's actually the area where the hotel would be, and you can see how close it would be. The hotel is a plan from the Mount Washington Cog Railway, which runs tourist trains up the mountain and owns a narrow strip of land for its tracks. The potential hotel would straddle those tracks in the alpine zone. The idea has drawn major opposition since it was first made public. That reignited recently after the COG cleared a maintenance trail along its tracks. People like David Gavatsky worried that would be used in hotel construction. To build in the Alpine, the COG would need a special county permit, but Gavatsky worries if it got one, the hotel would attract more people than the mountain could handle. I mean, this is exemplary habitat that you see here, some of the best of its kind in the world for these natural communities. And to have trails running here, there, and everywhere is going to be a real problem. As we talk, perched on rocks to protect the grass, Molly Carmody from Massachusetts hikes by on her way to the summit. She thinks this place should remain an escape from society. To get to some place where you can only get by the power of your body is pretty cool. But right above us, there are hundreds of people in the State Park Visitor Center at the summit who did not use their bodies to get here. Hiking hasn't been the only way to scale Mount Washington since the 1800s. 
You can pay to take the train or drive the hairpin turns of the Mount Washington Auto Road. They move thousands of people a day, and they're getting more popular every year. Want to go ride our postcards? In the gift shop, with windows looking out over wide green valleys and high blue sky, Jody Heal and her five-year-old son Austin are buying postcards to send home to family in Maine. They drove the mountain last time they visited and took the train this year. Heal says she's not sure they'd have come if the summit had no facilities. Especially traveling with children, um, they don't always hike very well. So it's nice when we get up here that if they're hungry, we can get food and if they want to get a souvenir, they can. Outside, crowds of people take panoramic videos of the view and stand in line for a selfie with the pile of rocks that marks the summit. Cars and motorcycles pull in and out of packed parking lots, and cog railway trains chug away off the mountaintop. Down at the Cogs base station, I meet the railway's owner, Wayne Presby. He says his proposed hotel would serve all these visitors, that it could boost this rural economy and ease the strain on other overcrowded mountain facilities. Well, I think we're one of the key pieces of the economy for Mount Washington, for tourism in general in the state of New Hampshire. That's been more true than ever for the past 15 years, since the fall of the old man of the mountain. Without the iconic rock face to attract huge numbers of visitors, Presby says, the state has worked to spotlight Mount Washington instead. He says he's just trying to meet that demand, to provide an alpine experience for everyone, hiker or not. People like to visit mountaintops, and not all of them are capable of hiking. People need refuge when the weather gets bad. So I think there's any number of reasons why there's a need for additional facilities up there. This year, New Hampshire plans to find out exactly how much need there is with a study of Mount Washington's summit capacity. It could help settle some debate over how the state's signature tourist attraction can be accessible to everyone and still remain wild. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. Coming up, marijuana growers in Massachusetts find new ways to go green. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The state of Vermont narrowly avoided a government shutdown at the end of June, as Governor Phil Scott vetoed the first two budgets passed by the legislature, but eventually allowed the third to pass. But why was the budget this year so contentious as to nearly shut down the state's government? Here to tell us about what happened and what it means for the future of Vermont politics is Bob Kinzel. He's a host of Vermont Edition and a reporter for VPR. Welcome to Next, Bob. Oh, it's great to be here, John. So you just narrowly avoided a government shutdown. Take us through exactly what happened there. Well, it was a big fight over the budget, but it really wasn't a fight about any specific item in the general fund budget because it concerned the future of education spending in Vermont and the appropriate use of surplus money. Right at the start of the session, Governor Phil Scott had vowed to veto any budget or any piece of legislation that raised any taxes or fees. And I mean any increase whatsoever. Now, on average, school budgets went up this year in Vermont by roughly one and a half percent. That was one of the lowest increases in many years. And based on these local spending decisions, the statewide property tax rate for education was expected to rise by a few percentage points. But the governor said this tax increase was unacceptable, and he proposed using some one-time surplus money 
to offset any tax increase. Now, this really, this decision really upset the Democrats. They felt it artificially increased school spending and would require a big tax hike next year. And in something of a role reversal, the Democrats argued it was a big mistake to use one-time money for ongoing programs in state government, usually in Vermont it's the Republicans who say that. Mm -hmm. And the Democrats also proposed using part of the surplus money to meet the state's obligation in the statewide teachers' retirement fund that had been underfunded for a number of years. So you really had a standoff. Because the Democrats placed this issue of education spending within the parameters of the state budget for next year. So it was an issue that had to be resolved by June 30th or else there would have been a government shutdown on the first day of the new fiscal year on July 1st. And nobody wanted that to happen. So that's why that third budget went through, even though I'm I'm pretty sure both sides were pretty unhappy with some parts of it. Absolutely. Uh, You know, in the end... The governor was really in a bind. Did he want to shut down state government, something that had never happened before, to protect the non-residential property tax rate? That's the rate that's paid by businesses, second homeowners, and people who own apartment houses in Vermont. Is that why he wanted to shut down state government? And he was very straightforward about this, that he felt the public would blame him for a government shutdown. He also made it very clear in his negotiations with the Democrats that a government shutdown was off the table. It would not happen under any circumstances. So in the end, the governor had to take the best deal he could negotiate with the Democrats and then let the budget become law without a signature. And I really think, John, each side really got about 75 percent of what they wanted. So in that sense, it really was a true compromise. There's a lot of politics to play, and I want to get into that in just a moment. But maybe you could take us a bit more through education funding in the state. If that's really at the heart of this budget dispute, Tell us more about how Vermont pays for education. It doesn't sound like a 1.5% increase is very much year over year for school districts in the state. Obviously, local towns and cities are going to pay property taxes on that. I mean, how exactly does Vermont pay for education in the first place? Well, it pays for it in several ways. One, through the statewide property tax. There's a residential rate and a non-residential rate. Also, part of our sales tax is dedicated to uh, the education fund. Our lottery revenues go to the education fund, and part of our income tax revenues go to the education fund. So it's really a mix of tax sources. But here's the situation that I think Vermont faces, and it's really at the heart of this debate. Over maybe the last 20 years or so, Vermont's student population has declined by about 25,000 students, but at the same time, spending on education has doubled. Now, just to put that student number in perspective, Vermont used to have roughly 115,000 students. That number now is just under 90,000. It's projected to continue to decline by 1% or 2% a year. So during this time period, the last two decades, the student-staff ratio has gotten smaller as class sizes have been reduced and as schools are being asked to respond to many new social service needs. In fact, Vermont's ratio, that student-staff ratio, is one of the smallest in the country. Now, Vermont also has a fair number of small schools. You know, we have high schools with a graduating class of eight people, and there are elementary schools with five or six students in each class. So this is a very expensive system to maintain, but local communities, many of them, 
are very reluctant to give up their schools. They see them as the focal point of community involvement. So I think the bottom line is a debate over how education costs should be controlled in the coming years. Is this a responsibility of state government to lead the way? That would be the governor's position without imposing new state mandates. Or should these decisions be made at the local level? For instance, if local voters support higher budgets, who's to say that these decisions are wrong? If you vote for a higher budget, your taxes go up. Basically, it's your choice. That's mm-hmm. the Democrats' argument. So so interesting. And of course, if the demographic trends continue, you're just going to have fewer and fewer students in these small schoolhouses in the future anyway. Well, look, it seems as though education is the biggest issue at the heart of the budget debate. But it sounds to me, Bob, like there's another thing that's really in the middle of this, which is, well, it's a political year. How much of this standoff was about the governor's race and about people vying for their for the seats in the legislature once again? Well, I think it highlighted the differences between the Republicans and the Democrats. There's no question about that. It really did come down on a partisan vote. The governor's made what he calls his affordability issue the top priority. And he's opposed any tax increases for a number of years. So that really does reflect his financial and fiscal philosophy. So I don't think it was really influenced by the campaign to that degree. The, the governor's race, though, is important in Vermont politics. How exactly is it shaping up? I mean, it seems like we, we just had Phil Scott elected and, and here we are again in a governor's race. John, you know, Vermont is one of two states, I believe, that still has a two-year term for governor. So virtually all incumbent governors are always reelected. In fact, only once in the last 66 years has an incumbent governor been defeated in a bid for re-election. And even then, that was 1962, there were some very unusual circumstances at play. Now, we have four Democrats running for governor. None of them is very well known. None has run for office before. It's not a presidential election year bringing out a lot of Democratic voters. So one would think that Phil Scott is in pretty good shape. He's been very critical of President Trump. He says he didn't vote for Trump. Uh, He also made it possible for the passage of some landmark gun legislation this session. Politics can be unpredictable, but at this point, Phil Scott is in good, good shape. We've talked with some of your colleagues about that gun legislation and just how unusual it was for the state of Vermont to pass the measures that Phil Scott signed. Talk about the overall impact from a political standpoint of this gun legislation, Bob. Oh, it really was huge, John. You know, Phil Scott has always been against gun control measures, and the legislature this year expanded background checks. They raised the age to purchase a gun. They also banned large-capacity magazines. And all this happened really because of Phil Scott. What happened was it was a day after the school shooting in Florida this winter when Vermont State Police recovered the diary of a former student in Vermont who wrote in great details about his plans to return to his high school and kill a lot of people. This information had a profound impact on Governor Scott. For him, it brought home the possibility that a mass shooting incident actually could happen in Vermont, and he urged lawmakers to pass those gun control measures. He's taken a lot of flack for it. A lot of the gun rights people have accused him of flip-flopping on this issue, of breaking promises. But it's hard to know how it's going to play out in the election because there are a lot of gun control people who are very, very grateful for what Governor Scott has done. 
Scott's Democratic opponents generally agree with him on this issue. There is a gun rights candidate running a write-in campaign for the Democratic gubernatorial nomination. The question is, how many votes can he get? It's a low turnout primary. 15,000 votes could win this primary. So we're going to have a chance to see how strong the gun rights movement really is in Vermont. There's another big issue that's at play in many states across the nation, including Vermont. As of July 1st, it's now legal for adults over the age of 21 to have one ounce of marijuana. We've been hearing in neighboring Massachusetts how this effort has been stalled, how now it's legal, but many towns don't necessarily want sales in their communities. How's the rollout going in Vermont? John, it's been very smooth because it's a very different law than the one in Massachusetts. Vermont's law is a so-called personal possession law. So that means individuals can possess up to an ounce of marijuana and you can grow two mature plants, but you still can't sell it and you can't buy it. So I'm not sure where you're supposed to get it, but some creative ideas are floating around like if you buy this T-shirt for $150, you'll get some free pot. I've heard one thing that many states that have legalized uh, marijuana are concerned about is what is law enforcement going to do about this? So you have these new laws, but you have law enforcement who've been used to cracking down on pot. So how's law enforcement dealing with this new legalization, Bob? Well, it's really a wait-and-see attitude for them. They're trying to be very flexible. Their biggest concern is impaired drivers on the roads. You know, Vermont is surrounded by states that have legalized pot. It's soon going to be legal in Canada. And, and John, you don't have roadside tests to measure THC levels in a person like the breathalyzer tests that are often administered to determine the amount of alcohol in a person. Now, Vermont does have roughly 50 state troopers who are trained as so-called drug recognition experts, and they can be called to the scene if a driver appears to be impaired by drugs, and that could be marijuana or even some prescription drugs. So the state police say they're trying to have a hands-off approach. They're trying to be very flexible. They're going to see how this whole thing unfolds and then put some uh, new procedures in place accordingly. Bob Kinzel covers politics and government for Vermont Public Radio. He's a host of Vermont Edition, and he joined us today from that state. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, John. So we've heard about some of the challenges that Vermont and Massachusetts are facing as marijuana becomes legal, but the industry is facing some new challenges too. Cultivators in Massachusetts, for instance, are facing constraints about how much energy they're allowed to use due to the state's tough regulations. Marijuana is not very energy efficient to grow, and the industry is being forced to find new ways to go green. WBUR's Bruce Gellerman has our story. Massachusetts has high expectations for suppliers of pot shops in the state. The new regs set strict limits on the amount of energy producers can use on their plants, depending on the size of their grows. Cannabis Control Commissioner Kay Doyle heads up the Energy Working Group. We understand that marijuana cultivation and product manufacturing is one of the most energy-intense industries that there is right now. The energy footprint of a typical indoor pot-growing facility is 8 to 10 times that of a similar-size office space. One study found 3% of the electricity used in California went for raising weed. 
And so we want to make sure that it is um, not something that is going to throw us out of whack with the Global Warming Solutions Act. That act requires the Commonwealth to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050 from 1990 levels. But the energy needed to grow a single pound of pot indoors can put 5,000 pounds of climate-changing CO2 into the atmosphere. Peter Bernard is helping to solve the problem with an active but laid-back approach. On his porch in Taunton, he grinds up some homegrown. He fills a rolling paper and lights up. Bernard is executive director of the Massachusetts Grower Advocacy Council. One of the nice things about this kind of work is you could be smoking up at any given time and it seems like it's okay. Nobody's going to say anything to you about it. Once a type A tech guy, Bernard began growing medical marijuana after hurting his back. Now he represents cultivators, large and small, helping craft growers and corporations navigate the complex state marijuana regulations. Uh, you know, if I'm talking to a legislator or a regulator and I'm trying to be all proper, it's cannabis. If I'm talking to my friends, it's weed or let's smoke a bone. Peter Bernard runs the Grower Advocacy Council out of his home, where he also raises his private stash. Whoa, you smell smell that? (laughs) That's the smell of success. It's also the smell of money. A window AC and dehumidifier hum in the background. His small grow room electric bill runs $110 a month. Cannabis likes to have a Goldilocks zone of environment. Your temperature's got to be just right. Your humidity's got to be just right. If you do, they're going to be at their happiest. Bernard's plants look very content. Two blue dream plants with big flowering buds grow under a purple light cast by an expensive LED. And two blue magoos bathed in yellow grow under a low-cost ceramic metal halide lamp. The lamps are on 12 hours or more a day. His small crop highlights the challenges large producers will face trying to meet the new state energy regulations. Those growing over 10,000 square feet of pot are limited to 36 watts of power per square foot. Smaller growers, 50 watts. It's complicated. This is why people are having a problem with this wattage deal. That light costs $150, my ceramic metal halide. My LED light costs $850. But the ceramic metal halide costs me $40 a month to run. The LED cost me 8 So you're paying now or you're paying later. Or you can use renewables. If a commercial grower gets 100% of their energy off the grid, they can use as much electricity as they want. It's going to force larger growers to think outside the box to solve their lighting problems. There are a lot of really viable LED solutions, but the capital upfront investment of that can be prohibitive. Alternatively, growers can think inside the box. So this is the stem box. Basically, this is going to be a pre-built modular grow system. Chris DeNaro is co-founder and chief tech officer of STEM Cultivation. In a Salem Wharf warehouse stands their prototype device. It's designed to use science, technology, engineering, and math to produce pot the most energy-efficient way. As a mechanical engineer, this was like a dream project for me. I got to just take all of the coolest technologies and put together a system to help maximize yield and efficiency of growing. The stem box is a self-contained vertical hydroponic pot farm 
Roots mounted in 24 plastic columns that slide in and out for harvesting are automatically fed precise amounts of water and nutrients. A five-ton AC keeps 240 plants Goldilocks happy. We uh, just plugged in the pump to get the recirculating hydroponic system going. Now we're going to turn on the lights. Whoa, that's bright. I feel like you got a suntan in here. <laughs> you have to wear shades. The state-of-the-art LEDs lining the stem box are made by a Massachusetts company. The lights are intense and positioned just right to maximize plant canopy exposure. To us, efficiency equals cost. Lower efficiency, lower cost. It's as simple as that. Stem cultivation CEO Kyle Moffat is the money guy. He estimates that in the three months it takes to grow 40 pounds of pot in a stem box, the system will use the same amount of electricity as the average home in a year. Licensed growers will rent the boxes and grow the plants. Moffat says his startup needs seed money. What we'd like to do is grow ourselves, get a micro-business cultivator license just for five, up to 5,000 square feet. We're not trying to be, because that R&D will help fund the business. So you'll grow the business by growing <laughs> yeah. the plants. Despite his groan, Kyle Moffat predicts the future of STEM is bright. It could get big fast because our objective is so clear. We're trying to figure out what is the absolute most efficient way to grow cannabis. Really, any plant. And that's why we call it a universal agronomy system. It could be for anything. Marijuana could be just the tip of the iceberg. Lettuce, that is. There are already a few companies in Boston using hydroponics and shipping containers to raise crops. Energy consultant Sam Milton runs Climate Resources Group in Arlington. For me, the really exciting part about this industry is that, you know, I see it as a bridge to a future where we have real sustainable urban agriculture, where we're growing the plants that we need to feed our community here in Boston. Imagine energy efficient, sustainable, vertical indoor farming pioneered in part by pot. Now that's dank. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, we'll visit the last kids of Cuddy Hunk Island. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Cuddy Hunk Island is 12 miles off the Massachusetts coast but it can feel worlds away. Only a dozen people live on the island year-round, and two of them are children, siblings Gwen and Carter Lynch, the only students at the last one-room schoolhouse in the state. The school only goes up to eighth grade, so both kids will be moving to the mainland in the next couple of years to attend a boarding high school. And as Bela Metzger reports, this will mean a major change for the kids and for the island. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of Class America. is just getting started at Cuddyhunk Elementary School. Everyone's here. Gwen Lynch, Carter Lynch. That's it. And their teacher, Ms. Carvalho. Over to the table with your journals, please, and a writing utensil. The schoolhouse is literally one room. It's actually the last one-room schoolhouse left in Massachusetts. Inside, it's airy and bright. Looking out the windows, you can see the ocean reaching out to the horizon. This morning, the subject is science. Gwen and Carter have been caring for dozens of turtles all winter long. They've been journaling about it. I thought it was pretty neat that we got to raise turtles like a school pet. Gwen is 12. She's in seventh grade. How is it having just you and your brother in class? It's quiet. 
it gets pretty boring and you're the center of attention. Can you get away with anything? No, not whatsoever. You'll get caught because you're center of just the two of you. Carter's in eighth grade, and being in such a small class, let's just say he's over it. All right, so Carter, what do you got? I forgot this was for homework. It is Friday, so let's give him a break. After science, they have math, then technology and engineering. Finally, it's 3.30. Carter takes down the flag out front, and Gwen rings the school bell. Carter heads straight home after school. But Gwen can't wait to show off her island. We call this the church path. So, Cuddyhunk is about a mile and a half long and three quarters of a mile wide. Gwen knows every inch of it. First, she shows me her trees. One's called the universe tree because it contains the universe. Then there's the apple tree, which has the best perch on island. Nice comfy spot. She shows me her kelp line, where she grows strands of seaweed. Wow. Oh, my gosh. It's never been this long. There's her rock. We like to put, like, berries or, like, grass in here and just grind it up. And then we'll, like, make, like, little pretend foods. Then it's over the dune and onto the beach. It smells like seaweed right now. She gives me a lesson in sea glassing. So what you want to do is look in the piles of small pebbles. So there's just piles... Her childhood is absolutely special. That's Lexi Lynch, Gwen and Carter's mom. She says the best time to be on Cuddy Hunk is the fall. Most kids are back in school and slogging through soccer and things like that. And we're down on the beach, you know, doing somersaults and cartwheels in the ocean. And I actually put a picture on Instagram and I wrote underneath, you know, September swimming, someday they'll thank me. But for Gwen, September's can be lonely. Her summer friends are gone. It's just her and her brother again. On the first day of school, she starts counting down the days until her friends come back. That's nine months of counting. You know how some people like kind of just want to be like away from everybody? That's not me. <laughs> if I were to live anywhere, I'd probably live in like a really packed area because I like just the hustle and bustle. So. And if you look down, turn your head right there, that's a beautiful piece of sea glass. And you can keep that little thing as a souvenir. The name Cuddyhunk comes from a Native American word, which means point of departure, or land's end. It probably refers to the island's location, 12 miles off the Massachusetts coast. In 1602, the English explorer Bartholomew Gosnold landed on Cuddyhunk and formed a temporary settlement. There was so much cod in the waters, he named the area Cape Cod. Later, in the 1800s, a group of wealthy New York businessmen bought up most of the island, they established a summer colony that's still thriving today. Every spring, the same people arrive by ferry. It feels like a big family reunion. There's even a Cuddy Hunk song, and everyone knows it. So give three cheers for Cuddy Hunk. Our spirits all are free. And no one knows the time of day or cares. That's why There have always been people who live on the island year-round, like Gwen and Carter's family. They're caretakers for summer homes. I've dug a lot of these graves. Anytime anybody ever passed away and they needed someone to dig a hole, um, we'd be up here. So That's Dwayne Lynch, the kid's dad. He's giving me a tour of Cuddy Hunk's historic cemetery. Dodge, Blout, Myth. All these people I know, it's like 
you know, they're your neighbors, they're your family, they're... Gravestones um, are etched with pictures of fishing boats and inside jokes, like the one on his mom's gravestone, which says... Hello, you. That's your sense of humor. Um, Dwayne's family first came here in the mid-1800s. That makes Gwen and Carter sixth-generation cuddy-hunkers. Dwayne wants to be buried here, in a big block of cement. The ocean is right there, and it's eroding every day. So when it gets to my body, I want it to come out into a big block, end up on the beach, and then people can stand on me and cast for stripers. When Dwayne was a kid in the 70s, Cuddy Hunk was bustling. There were 14 kids in the school back then. Being so many kids, we'd play flashlight tag in the middle of the night. We'd be trying to catch frogs and looking for treasures. But that was 30 years ago. Housing was cheap, there were jobs. Things have changed. If you were to move in, you're looking at $1.2 million to buy a home on Cuddy Hunk that has no shopping, has no sports for your kids to play, no after-school programs, no health care facilities, no public transportation except on a Monday or a Friday in the middle of winter. What about Wednesday when you're out of milk? Back in the 90s, 50 people lived on island year-round. Enough for a really good potluck, people say. Today, it's dwindled to just around a dozen people. Four of them are the lynches. Some people call Gwen and Carter the future of Cuddy Hunk. But when you talk to their dad about the island's future, he's like, what about it? It's already gone. You can't get it back. It's the people that made Cuddy Hunk. You know, the people who have, have moved on and the people who have passed away. That's Cuddy Hunk. You know, the rest of it's just granite and dirt. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> During the off-season, the Lynch family has dinner together every night. Tonight, it's ham, mashed potatoes, and Brussels sprouts. A common topic of conversation these days is Carter. Cuddyhunk Elementary only goes up to the eighth grade. In a couple months, Carter will graduate, and in the fall, he's off to boarding school in Rhode Island. Gwen will be the only kid left on island. I ask them if they're ready for all this change. Just going to say it now, I just want to leave get away, and come back. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean come yeah, back? Yeah, whoa. I've already made plans to change your room. There's no coming back. Well, you don't get to choose what happens. They joke like this for a while, thinking up all the ways they'll use Carter's room when he's away at school. Then the conversation turns to Gwen. Yeah, I could say Listen, little one, you're next. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In another year, she'll follow her brother to the mainland for high school. Cuddy Hunk Elementary will close if no other students matriculate. But Gwen's not concerned with that. I feel like I've had my time here. I've done everything here. Yeah, I think I can move on from the island. I've checked it off the list. The parents, Dwayne and Lexi, are excited for their kids to experience life on the mainland. But they're also nervous. Cuddyhunk is a bubble. Lexi was visiting a high school recently when she realized how different their family's life is. All these other parents around me are asking one question. What do you guys do in case of an emergency? What's your system for a school shooting or something like that? That never even crossed my mind because that is something that we have avoided completely by raising our children on Cuddy Hunk. She worries her kids will fall in with the wrong crowd, shoplift at the mall, or do drugs. It's a big, bad world out there. But it's a world her kids will have to figure out. 
The lives they want don't exist on Cuddy Hunk. Carter wants to design video games when he grows up. Gwen wants to be an engineer and live in an apartment in the city. They both say when they have kids, they'll bring them to the island for summer vacation. Be tourists, like everyone else. So if your kids are like the last generation of native cuddy hunkers, how do you feel about that? I don't wish for my children to come back and live here. I want them to go see the world, you know, move to wherever, Switzerland, I don't know, but go. A dozen people stand on the shore of Cuddy Hunk's main pond. Just over the hill is Gwen's universe tree. Around the bend, a beach full of sea glass waiting to be collected. Nearly everyone on island today is here to cheer on Gwen and Carter as they release their turtles back into the wild. Gwen and Carter are picking turtles out of a plastic bin, then carefully placing them on the shore. Brother and sisters. Two of the turtles look like siblings, so they put them next to each other. The turtles seem stunned by their new environment. They don't move. One of these deals. Give them a little push. Gwen sets the last turtle down into the mud. Look at that. One by one, each turtle paddles off. On Cuddyhunk Island, Massachusetts, I'm Bela Metzger. That story comes to us from the Transom Story Workshop and PRX. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Our producer is Lillian Kaisen. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.